Thank you for listening to this teaching from Kingdom Discipleship. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul explains that to be entrusted with the Word of God is an unimaginable blessing. How much do you revere the Scriptures? Regrettably, most of us as Christians do not love and honor the Scriptures in a way that's appropriate. Let's open our Bible now to Romans chapter 3 and look at the incredible privilege of having, quote, the very words of God. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another teaching. It is a Saturday afternoon here in Texas and hopefully y'all loving on Jesus, spending time with Jesus and just uh, growing to be a more devoted disciple of Jesus Christ our Lord. We say it over and over, it's the meaning of life, growing to be a more mature, a more effective, a more loving disciple of Jesus Christ our Lord. So thank you, Lord Jesus. All right. So we're going to begin Romans chapter 3 today. Uh, we finished chapter 2 last time, and uh, Lord willing, we'll get through about verses 1 through 8. Um, and uh, man, this uh, it's just, just good stuff. So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy, your favor, your goodness, and your grace on our lives. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Romans, Father. Wow. Thank you, Father. Above all, Father, as always, we thank you for Jesus, our only Lord and Savior and Master and King. Lord Jesus, we thank you for becoming a human man for us. We thank you for living a perfect, righteous life on our behalf and dying a torturous death on our behalf. And we thank you that you are alive and risen today. And we worship you today, our risen Savior. Holy Spirit, we ask you to lead us and guide us now as we open your word. Give us eyes that see, we pray, ears that hear, and hearts to understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Okay, Romans 3, verses 1, and we'll do through verses 8 or 9, Lord willing. Okay, Romans 3, verse 1. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is deserved. Okay, wow. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord Jesus. Okay, so in chapter two, remember, Paul was dealing with the person who believed themselves to be morally superior to all those horrible sinners in chapter one. And Paul makes it clear that, that even though you may not be living in adultery, that, that you may not be you know, horribly stealing or terribly greedy, 
that that every single one of us is a self-centered, selfish, myopic, sinful person. And, and because of that, we are under the wrath of God. Um, he deals with the Jewish person in chapter two who, you know, who really does believe that because they were given the word of God, they were given the law of God, the Ten Commandments and the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, because they were given these things as well as the covenant of circumcision, they believed that, that they were good and they were going to heaven, you know, even though that they were sinful. And Paul, you know, lets them know that, that no, that's not the case, that that, that you're not going to heaven because of your Jewish heritage. You're not going to heaven because you were given the, the revelation of the word of God and the, you know, in the law. Um, and you're not going to heaven because of circumcision. And so when he says in verse one, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? That's Romans three, verse one. You know, he's asking the question. So the Jewish person is, is like, well, then you know, I guess there's no advantage in being a Jew. There's, I guess there's no benefit at all if it's, if I don't get to heaven because I'm Jewish, because Paul's made it clear in chapters one and two, that all human beings are under sin. Every one of us is equal at the foot of the cross. We are all hopeless, helpless, desperate sinners. We need a savior and we are not it. Whether we're Jews or whether we're not Jews, which means we're Gentiles, every one of us, all 8 billion people in the world are sinful, and our only hope is in receiving, trusting, and relying in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our soul. And so, you know, Paul is, is answering the question, what advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value in circumcision? Verse 2, much in every way, First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. And let that sink in. So for the Jewish person that says, well, okay, so it, it you know doesn't mean anything to me then. So, you know, I'm born a Jew. I'm raised knowing all the laws. You know, I go to temple. I do all these things. You know, I've been circumcised. And you're telling me that I'm just headed to hell like everyone else. So there's been no advantage for me. And Paul says, no, no, no. There's, there's been an advantage for you in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. The, the fact that they were given as a people, the Jewish people were given the word of God. They were given the holy scriptures. And Paul says, first of all, above all things, the blessing that this was to the Jewish people is utterly incomprehensible. The fact that they were given the written word of God is an advantage that, that, that really is inconceivable. It's such a tremendous, great blessing and advantage. But now think about that. What does that mean for us? They have been entrusted with the very words of God. You know, as Christians today, as people in the world today in 2023, I mean, we take for granted that we have this Bible, Stephen. Scott, there are 66 books in our Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. This Bible are the very words of God. 
Romans 3, verse 2, much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. We've been entrusted with this Bible, Nathan. We have the word of God. It's literally the most exciting thing we have in this life is our Bible. It's in our Bible that we learn that Jesus came into this world, a world that he created. It's in our Bible that we learn that we are utterly sinful, hopeless, helpless and desperate and headed to hell. It's in our Bible that we learn that Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf that we could never live, died a torturous death on our behalf that we should have died, and that he is alive and risen. We learn that in our Bible. It's in our Bible that we learn that if we'll receive and believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and trust in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our soul, that we will be forgiven of our sin. We'll come into relationship with God. God the Father will be our heavenly Father. Jesus Christ will be our Lord and Savior and Master and King. God the Holy Spirit will be our guide, our counselor, and our comforter. It's in our Bible that we learn that we will receive eternal life, spiritual life, by receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We've been given the very words of God. This is why we do this. This is why we're doing these teachings. The, the whole reason that we have this teaching ministry is because we're, we're reading, studying, and making an effort to teach the Word of God. It is by and far the most valuable thing to learn. There's no teaching that you or I have ever received. There's no learning that you or I have ever received that's as valuable, Kristen, as learning and receiving the Word of God. What does that mean, Wendy? It means that you ought to be in your Bible. I ought to be in my Bible. Every single one of us, Rap, ought to be spending more time in our Bible. This is not religion. It's not because we have to, Becky. It's because we get to. And again, we've gotten to this place. And Father, I ask you to forgive us. Forgive me. Forgive us where we have just been so cavalier and just taken for granted that we get to have this Bible, that we get to have this 66 books compiled for us in this Bible, and they are the very words of God. Just forgive us, Father. Wow. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God, and we've been entrusted with the very words of God. So Paul gets back to his argument, verse 3. What if some did not have faith? Okay, so Paul's saying now the Jews were entrusted with the very word of God, the 66 books of the Old Testament promised that a Messiah, a Savior, would come, Corinne. That, that a Savior would come and, you know, would, would save not only the, the people of Israel, but all the world, you know, from an eternity in hell and from their sinful condition, right? The Old Testament prophesied and promised a Savior, okay? You can read... Isaiah 56, you could read that chapter, and it's an incredible chapter on 700 years earlier on that Jesus would come and all that he would do, okay? But now Paul says they've been given the very words of God, but what if some did not have faith? The vast majority of the Jewish people, not only in Paul's day, but regrettably even today, rejected the gospel. They did not have faith. 
They did not believe the word of God. They didn't believe the gospel that was prophesied. And regrettably, they don't believe in the uh, the, the Savior, Jesus, in the New Testament, right? So Paul says, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? So, so because they rejected Jesus, they were given the word of God that told them a Savior would come. The Savior did come. They rejected it. They didn't have faith in Christ. And Paul says, will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Somehow... Will God's faithfulness in accomplishing his purposes, will that somehow be affected because people rejected it? Verse four, not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar as it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. And he takes that out of Psalm 51 verse four. All right. So what does that mean for us, Lauren? Right. Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? When we don't believe the word of God, the majority of the people in the world today, 8 billion people, regrettably, they don't revere the Bible. They don't respect the Bible. They don't believe the Bible's the word of God. As such, they don't believe that Jesus is God, the son of God, God the son. They don't believe that he came into this world. They believe that he came into the world because Jesus Christ is a historical figure. You cannot not believe that Jesus is a historical figure, okay? If you don't believe Jesus is a historical figure, you don't believe any history, okay? Jesus Christ is an absolute, there's no question about it, historical figure. It cannot be denied, okay? It'd be like denying that George Washington is a historical figure or Napoleon is a historical figure or Caesar Augustus is a historical figure. It's absolute. It's certain. You cannot deny that. And you cannot deny that we have Jesus's words either. Okay. Um, you know, when, when, you know, when you, when you do this, you know, this, this textual criticism, which is a form of, you know, you know, a form of kind of a scientific understanding, basically of how to understand the text of scripture. And I'm using, you know, scientific there usefully, but you know, it's 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 a way to really understand, um, you know, an ancient text and to criticize it and to know that it's real. We do have the words of Jesus in the Gospels. So we have Jesus Christ as a historical figure and we have his words. So these things are certain. So now the only issue is either you believe him or you don't. You can't say that, you know, well, I don't believe in Jesus or that Jesus was a historical figure. It's nonsense. Then you don't believe Abraham Lincoln existed. Okay. It's foolish. You can't do it. You can't say that you don't have the words of Jesus because in the gospels, we do have the, re you know, the recorded words of Jesus. And it's a fact. You can't just dismiss it and say, well, I don't believe Jesus said that. Then you don't believe that Abraham Lincoln, you know, wrote the Gettysburg Address either. You don't just pick and choose and just decide off the cuff, well, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this. It's nonsense, okay? The evidence, the firm factual evidence is number one, absolutely that Jesus existed in history, okay? Regardless of anything it says in the scriptures, the scriptures obviously verify this, but Jesus Christ is an absolute historical figure. 
And the words that he spoke that we have recorded in the gospel are certainly his words. So now what you have to deal with is the fact of whether you believe him, whether you take him at his word, or whether you just believe he's a complete lunatic, a madman, a liar like there's never been. Those are your only options. Either you, you, have, to, you have to call Jesus a complete lunatic, you have to call him a, the greatest liar there's ever been, the greatest deceiver there's ever been, or you have to call him Lord. C.S. Lewis is famous for having said he's either liar, lunatic, or he is who he says he is. He's Lord. And so we have to deal with this person, Jesus. But Paul says, will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Well, the majority of people don't believe, right, Pop? They don't believe in Jesus. So does that somehow thwart God's plan? Not at all. Verse 4. Paul says, not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. If every single other person in the world, if every person in our family, if all of our friends, if all of our church are saying and believing something, but it's not what our Bible teaches, then we always side with the word of God. That's something we really need to understand, Chris. Okay. Our belief is is in the word of God. The reason we believe in the son of God is it says it in the word of God. It says it in our Bible, Jason, right? Let God be true and every man a liar. In the Bible, we have the word of God. The Bible is true. So it doesn't matter who in your life, your parents, your wife, your kids, your church, your pastor, your boss, whoever it is, if they're saying something, or confirming something, or trying to get you to believe something that's contrary to the Bible, let them all go. And it's for you and I to stay firmly grounded in the truth of the Word of God. And no matter who believes or who doesn't believe, the Word of God is going to come to pass, and the Word of God is steadfast and true. So no, God is not somehow justified or made right by by our belief in him okay he's not made more because we believe in him or we don't we have the choice to believe in him and to follow him and to obey his word and to receive jesus as savior but but that doesn't somehow vindicate him okay will their lack of faith nullify god's faithfulness not at all let god be true in every man a liar as it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Every single one of us is going to come under judgment. And Paul's going to talk about this here. Verse 6. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. So, you know, Paul is again, he's anticipating objections, right? He's anticipating what people are going to say. And so he says, but if our unrighteousness, you know, our evil behavior brings out God's righteousness more clearly, meaning, you know, when the more sinful we act, the more clear it is that we have a holy God and we are violating his will and his ways and his word. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? 
And Paul says here, I am using a human argument, meaning this is this is this is worldly thinking, this is human thinking, this is not scripture. Verse six, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Listen to this verse. Certainly not. So no, our unrighteousness does, you know, does not, you know, somehow because it enhances God's glory, it doesn't let us off the hook as sinful people. It doesn't keep us from the wrath of God. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? There it is again, Nathan, right? Bringing his wrath on us. All of us as sinful human beings, all 8 billion people that are not in Christ are under the wrath of God. If we're in Jesus Christ today, then God's wrath for our sin was put to Jesus at the cross. If we're not in Jesus Christ, we'll spend eternity in hell, Tommy, satisfying the wrath of God for our sin. Now, I'll say, I'll say it again. I know that sounds intolerant. It's just what the word of God teaches. That's why we beg you to give your life to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus became a man for you. The reason he came into this world is so that you wouldn't have to bear the wrath of God. That's why God himself, the son of God, God the son, took on humanity and entered this world lived a perfect life, died a horrible, torturous death, and was raised from the dead so that you and I wouldn't have to suffer the wrath of God. And all we need to do is humble ourselves and receive him, acknowledge our sinfulness, and place our full trust and confidence in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our soul. God has given his word. John 1.12 says, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, Jesus he gave the right to become children of God. So Paul says, you know, no, okay? God is just in bringing his wrath on us. He says, certainly not. If that were so, if God were unjust in bringing his wrath on us, how could God judge the world? Verse six, in Jesus's day, it there was a common certain understanding and really all people that there would be a judgment that we would stand before God and give an account for our lives. Now, today in 2023, you know, there's a there's a good portion of the world, even the majority of the world doesn't believe that. Doesn't believe that we're going to have to give an account of our lives to God. It was common understanding in Paul's day, but today, you know, we've, you know, we've conveniently decided that we don't believe that. And, and hear me when I tell you, and I say it in fear, every single human being is going to stand before God, the son, Jesus, and give an account of their lives. If you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior in this life, if you've trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, genuinely in the salvation of your soul, you'll stand before Jesus and You'll give an account of your life and you'll be rewarded for how you serve Jesus in this life. If you never receive Jesus, you'll stand before him and you will receive a punishment and spend eternity in hell for the level of, of evil and wickedness that you lived in. God will judge the world. Jesus, the son of God, 
God the Son will judge this world. Verse 7, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? So again, Paul has heard these ridiculous arguments, and it's interesting here to see the, the style of how Paul is, is unpacking this, okay? This is very interesting here, okay? Someone might argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Verse 8, why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may result, their condemnation is deserved. And that's a heavy man. Look at those words. Look at those last four words. Their condemnation is deserved. We have here the greatest evil of all, okay? The greatest level of evil and sin Paul's going to bring here. Now, remember in chapter one, he just, he gave you like, you know, you know, three different, you know, you know, kinds of, of, of sin and this increasing sin. And finally, the Lord gives you over. And then finally, you know, when you just, when you don't want to retain any knowledge of God at all, they move into the most, they move from the sins of the flesh, you know, the sins of sexual immorality, um, you know, whether it be fornication, adultery, homosexuality, with no repentance. And then as you just have no consideration to, to, to know God or to repent over your sin, he gives you over into the deepest, darkest sins of the soul, uh, malice, hate, you know, greed, you know, just these, these horrible, deep, dark sins of the soul. Um, but then Paul says here, there is, a, there is a level of sin beyond that. And here are people who say, let us do evil that good may result. Think about that. Now, not only are you, but you're, you're making an excuse for your sinful lifestyle. And you're, you're, you've basically said, I'm going to do as much sin as I can because it's going to bring God more glory. Can you see the, the absurdity of that? Can you see why that is more evil than anything? Again, obviously we have the word of God. We have, you know, we have the moral law of God. We have our conscience. We have our heart. We know right from wrong. But you get to this place where these people have gotten to a place of saying, let us do evil that good may result. Not only justifying their sin, but wanting to increase their sin, encouraging others to increase their sin, and saying that, that God is pleased with it. And Paul says here, their condemnation is deserved. Wow. Have mercy, Lord Jesus. But again, look at how Paul unpacks it. Paul shows you here by, 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 by really following, you know, the... Uh, you know, following the trail or following the consequences of a thought, you know, looking at the, the results of a train of thinking or looking at the results of, say, a, a doctrine or a truth, you know, you can often see the validity of it or not. What am I saying? Look, at someone might argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil 
that good may result, their condemnation is deserved. So again, um, you know, when, when Paul says that, you know, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust and bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument, certainly not. And then he breaks down how foolish that could look, right? When you say that God's righteousness, that our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, right? So, you know, now you could, you could extend that to say, well, golly, then God shouldn't be able to bring his wrath on us. We shouldn't have to stand before judgment. As a matter of fact, you could even argue then that if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Because the more sin I do, the more glory his name is getting. So my point is when we study the scriptures, when you're looking in uh, to a truth or to a doctrine, to really strain out the consequences of that doctrine. C.S. Lewis did this exceptionally in his writings. He would consistently, you know, give cause and effect for a particular truth, meaning that if this is true, then this is true. And if that's true, then this is true. And if that's true, then this is true. And therefore, you know, originally you go back and this can't be true. So does that make sense? So when you're, when you're studying the scriptures, when you're studying a doctrine, when you're, when you're wanting to evaluate the validity of something, look to, to strain out, you know, the potential consequences of it or, you know, you know, what can come to pass in light of that. And that can help, you know, bring the truth of, of whether, you know, a, a particular understanding of some scripture or some doctrine, you know, is true and right. Right. So. Paul says their condemnation is deserved. <clears throat> when you get to a point that you're, you're saying that the evil that you do, the sin that you do, the sin that I do, when we're willing to say that, that we ought to do more of it because God will be blessed with it, because his name will somehow bring, bring more glory to it, and we want to abuse a particular you know, doctrine like that, Paul says their condemnation is deserved. And uh, I mean, that, that's a scary place to be. So hopefully we haven't gotten to that point. And even if you have, if you've made an excuse at some point and said, you know what, I'm going to lie more. So, you know, that God will get more glory. And again, hopefully no one has said that. And even now you can repent and go back and say, Father, I'm sorry for my foolishness my ignorance, have mercy on me, Lord Jesus, a sinner. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy, your favor, your goodness, and your grace on our lives. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for living for us, for dying for us, and we thank you that you are alive and risen today. Holy Spirit, we ask you to seal this message to our hearts now. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.